Thank you, Jeff and the praise team. If you have your Bibles, open with me to John chapter 4, verses 1 to 42 is where we're going to be this morning. John chapter 4, verses 1 to 42. John chapter 4, 1 to 42. Well, we've begun a new series on worship. We've taken a break, a little bit of a break from Matthew. And we've stepped into a new series that we've called Spirit and Truth, understanding the biblical idea of worship. What it is that we're here to do when we gather together on a Sunday morning. Or how we take that worship into our daily lives whenever we gather in our homes or whenever we walk around the street or do our jobs or whatever. Every church has a liturgy. Every single church has a liturgy. Uh, We typically think of, when we hear the word liturgy, we typically think of priests in white collars. We think of high prayers. We think of really uh, organ-driven songs. We think of uh, kind of pomp and circumstance. We think of kneeling and standing and those kinds of things. But all liturgy actually is, is the form that worship takes. That's it. It's just the form that worship takes. So every single church has a liturgy. Modern Southern Baptists have a liturgy that you're probably very pretty much used to. It's a little bit different than it is here. Uh, Early Southern Baptist Church had a a different liturgy that you're probably not used to. It looks a little bit more like it does here. But the liturgy, the purpose of the liturgy in the worship is that it teaches you what the most important thing in worship really is. It tries to zero your attention on what the most important aspects are as we come together and gather for worship. Last week we we looked at Revelation chapter 4 and we said about that, or I, I defined worship as we saw there, and I said that worship is the expression of the worth of God. It's where we gather together and we express that God is worth it. And it's based on a proper understanding of who He is. So worship is the expression of the worth of God based on a proper understanding of who He is. We're going to add to that definition this morning, but that was sufficient for last week. This morning we're going to look at Jesus and His interaction with the woman at the well. A passage that most of you are very familiar with. And it takes place in John chapter 4 verses 1 to 42. And we're going to read all of it this morning. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? 
Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up into eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white with harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, open your word to us. We know that it's only through your Spirit that we may receive understanding of the words of Scripture and apply it to our lives and then seek to actually live by it. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you have to tell us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Well, the story of the woman at the well has obviously received lots of attention. You've probably heard many sermons preached on uh, the woman at the well over the years. And you've probably heard better sermons than the one I'm about to preach on the woman at the well. I would acknowledge that. It's a remarkable story where you see Jesus' compassion for the lost. Here, here we've got him, him talking to a woman who is in sin, and you see Jesus call her out on it. But he does it in a way that's compassionate and that's gentle. But he's still unrelenting. It's a, it's a wonderful story. But this story also gives us a tremendous insight into what it actually means to worship God and how we know if we've actually gathered here to do it. And I want to just make something very clear before I preach this sermon. That I stand up here guilty and convicted about the worship in my own heart. And I want to throw that out there and just make it clear so that we can properly evaluate together, that you individually can evaluate your own heart in this. I say this frequently, and maybe you believe me, maybe you don't, but any sermon that I preach, I preach first to me. I spend a week in my office preaching it to me. And I preach it to me even now, that I'm guilty of this Every, every bit as much as anybody else in this room. And I hope that by knowing that, that by simply calling that out, we can all evaluate our own heart and don't feel the need to put on airs and say, oh yeah, I am truly a worshiper of God, I know for sure. In the text, I think there are three things that are at least three things that are revealed about true and genuine worship of God. First, worship is satisfaction in Christ. First, worship is satisfaction in Christ. So the first six verses of this passage, they set the, the context, they set the scene for us, and it gives us some important details about the context of the conversation between Jesus and this woman. This conversation is going to take place, as it says there, around Jacob's well. Now, Jacob is, of course, he's a patriarch, and he's a patriarch to both the Jews and the Samaritans. Jacob is Isaac's son, and he's Abraham's grandson. And so needless to say, he's an important figure in the life of a Jew and the life of a Samaritan, as it turns out. Jacob's name was later changed by God himself to Israel, which is the, na the name that the nation still takes to this very day. And so Jacob is an important figure. Well, Jacob had purchased this land in Shechem in Genesis 33, 19. And before he died, he gave it to Joseph. We saw that in Genesis 48, 22. And so we see here in this passage, in verse uh, 6, that it's about noon, and the disciples have gone into town to get some takeout and bring it back to Jesus. So this well that we're gathered around, that these people are gathered around, is a well purchased by Jacob, given to Joseph, and now they regularly gather around it as their source for water. And the conversation begins with Jesus in verse 7 telling this woman to give him a drink. And the woman, you notice, is taken aback by the question. Or by him actually even talking to her. Because Jesus has broken some cultural boundaries here. For one, she's a woman. That's a cultural boundary in and of itself. 
For two, she's a Samaritan. That's another cultural boundary. When the Assyrians invaded about 800 years before Jesus was even born, the Assyrians invaded the area of Samaria and they took away all the people that would be of, of, of value to them. All the hard workers, they took away all the rich people, they took away all the leaders, they took basically everyone out of the land that they thought would benefit them, everyone of prestige, that they thought would benefit them in their society. And they left behind what they assumed to be the riffraff, essentially. And then they sent back to the land that people from their own pagan culture and people from other pagan cultures around Israel to basically go in and, pardon the expression, but breed out what was considered the Jewish riffraff. That was the goal. Now, you know as a Jew you're not supposed to intermarry, you're not supposed to marry a pagan, but the Samaritans actually did. And so the Samaritans are seen as apostate from the Jewish faith, and they're basically sellouts to their brothers who were hauled off into captivity. They developed their own religion that looks kind of like Judaism, but also a lot different too. They only held the first five books of the Old Testament as authoritative. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those were the only books in the Samaritan Bible that they saw were authoritative. And that's important for our story. So Jesus engages with her and she pushes back against him. She's taken aback by him crossing these boundaries, wonder why, wondering why he would break those kinds of boundaries. And he tells her in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That's pretty normal by this point for people to not know what in the world Jesus is talking about. Right? That is often the case for me. We read the Bible and we, he gives a response to somebody and they're like, what in the world is he even referring to? He does this to the disciples at the end of the passage. I have food you don't even know about. And they're like, what in the... I, I, well, you sent us to get lunch uh, and bring it back. We wasted our money. Um, so she has no idea where he's going to get this water, how he's going to get this water. He doesn't even have a bucket. How is it that you're going to give me living water and you're asking me for water? It's helpful to know that the term living water can also refer to running water, to water that's flowing. So the well uh, that they're gathered around, Jacob's well, is actually a place you can visit if you want to go to the West Bank. Probably not most of us do, but if you did want to go to the West Bank, you could see it to this day. It's right there. It's very difficult, as it turns out, to move a well. So the Jacob's well is still there. You can see it. And we know that it's fed by an underground current of living, of, if you will, living, flowing water. And essentially, the well is there to kind of dam it up or well it up so that they would go and it would stop there and they would reach their bucket down very, a very long hole and they would pull up the water. So Jacob, as it turns out, is, was incapable of digging the hole so that you could just put your bucket down in the stream of water and have it run into the bucket, he welled it up. So she asks the question, are you greater than our father Jacob? you telling me you can improve this well? You can make it a well of living water? Is that what you're telling me? You're better than our father Jacob? Now, her question is more profound than she knows. And I think that this question 
is the central, most important question in the whole passage. And I think it's part of the reason why John includes this story in his gospel. He wants you to wrestle the reader with that question. Is Jesus greater than Jacob? Is he greater than Jacob? This isn't the only time he's going to do this. Four chapters later, the Pharisees are going to ask him a question about one of their patriarchs. Are you greater than our father Abraham? To which Jesus is going to respond before Abraham was, I am. Which his answer is, yes, I am better than Abraham. And so Jesus responds to this woman, yes, I'm better than Jacob because the water that I give gives eternal life. The water Jacob gives gives temporary life. The water that I give gives eternal life. So is Jesus greater than Jacob? Yes. Because Jacob's incapable of providing you the kind of water that truly satisfies, the water that results in eternal life. The woman doesn't fully understand this yet. She doesn't totally grasp what Jesus is saying. She may not grasp it hardly at all at this point. But Jesus is telling her that He is the gift. That He is the gift from God. And that it's only through Him that you can be truly satisfied. That's what He's telling her right here. In other words, when it comes to the worship of God, true worship of God, true satisfying worship of God, can only be had in Jesus Christ. So last week, what we saw was that worship is to God. Worship is directed to God. That all of us are to gather here together and imagine us being in the throne room of God, standing in front of Him, giving Him praises, and then also know you're welcomed in. Because the only reason you're standing there is by the blood of Christ. That's the only reason you're welcomed into the throne room. So Last week, true worship is to God. This week, true worship is through God the Son, Jesus Christ. Now, I think that this sends a, or should send a piercing message to our churches today who think that bigger is better. It should pierce us right in the heart if that's what we think. That you're coming here every Sunday to be reminded that you need nothing else in your life but Jesus Christ. You need nothing else in your life but Jesus Christ. Your children need nothing else in their life but Jesus Christ. They don't need to be accepted by friends. They don't need to be accepted in society. They don't need to be well-adjusted adults. They need to be accepted by Jesus Christ. This church needs nothing else in its life than to come here on a Sunday-by-Sunday basis and drink deeply from the satisfying waters of Jesus Christ and be reminded that if we died tomorrow in poverty and destitution, but we died with Jesus Christ and were ushered into eternal life, then we are rich indeed. That is what we come here for. 
I need nothing more than Jesus Christ. If true worship of God can only be had through this kind of satisfaction, the kind of satisfaction you can only have in Christ, which I think is what Jesus is saying here. That's what he's getting at by saying that he's the satisfying living water. That's what he's saying. Then how does an individual know if he or she is truly worshiping God? How does a church know if what we're doing is actually worshiping God? How do we know if we're actually Christ-centered in our worship, if we're truly satisfied in Jesus Christ alone? Well, we can ask ourselves a couple questions. When you think of Emmanuel Baptist Church, what causes you angst? Does anything cause you frustration here? Let me ask it a, a, another way, maybe more specifically. If all the programs were to disappear, all the committees, all the fancy buildings, the children's ministry, the student ministry, if it were to all disappear, but Christ was still preached every single Sunday, that Christ was still sung every Sunday, that the gospel was still proclaimed every single Sunday. Would you go somewhere else? We're often lured and enticed by a culture that demands many amenities beyond biblical teaching. And the reason that it wants you to entertain those things is because that's what it needs to lure them in. That's what you need to get their attention. And the American culture has told churches that they have to look busy to be serious contenders for our affection. Well, if you want to bring them in, well, then you've got to have those things. But it misses something fundamental about our gathering here. I'm not here because I'm competing for anyone's affection. I'm here because Jesus already won my affection. We've been fooled into thinking that it's about bigger budgets, that it's about brick and mortar, that it's about packing out the sanctuary. That it's about presenting clear vision statements. Because we've been told that the church is a business. And so the more diversified your investments, the more ministries that, you're ha that you have going on, the busier you are, the more successful you must be. Well, you must be doing something right. Look how many people are there. But Jesus is telling the woman at the well the exact opposite. True worship is rest. True worship is being satisfied. Worship is satisfaction in Christ alone. I'm not saying any of those things you can't have. Or that those things are inherently sinful. We actually have all of those things. 
What I'm questioning is how do you measure success? How do you measure the true growth of a church? How do you measure the direction the church is going? Is it by the spiritual growth of the Christians that are worshiping Christ? Or is it merely by the external things like budgets and numbers and programs? Second thing that I want us to see here is that Christ-centered worship happens when true believers desire to grow in the knowledge of God. Christ-centered worship happens when true believers desire to grow in the knowledge of God. So Jesus has this woman really interested in what he's talking about. If nothing more than because she might think that he's a little bit crazy. And so, uh, for one, she still thinks that he is talking about actual H2O, actual physical water that would be flowing in there. She, and she, she doesn't want to have to go through the hassle of coming back to this place every week. So she thinks, well, maybe he's a crazy man. Or, I don't know, maybe he's telling the truth. And if he does have something like this water, then I won't have to come back here at noon and fill up my bucket every single day. So she asks him some more questions. Jesus knows that she's not catching his drift, and he's having none of it. He's actually going to push a little bit harder. And now the interaction that takes place in the following parts of the passage between Jesus and this woman, I think are very important. He's about to shock her awake. He's about to grab her by the shoulders and shake her and take the conversation on a much more spiritual level. And so he tells her, go to your husband. And she, of course, brushes him off. She's like, I don't have a husband. Well, once again, Jesus isn't having any of that. So he pushes a little bit harder, and he says, you had five husbands, and the man that you're sleeping with now is not your husband. To which she says, I think you might be a prophet. (laughs) But I want you to remember something. What I told you earlier. She's a Samaritan. Five books of the Bible. She didn't have any of the prophets. She doesn't believe that the prophets of Judaism are authoritative. So when it comes to prophets, she believes the words of Deuteronomy 34.10, which says, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. But she also believes, because she tells us in verse 25, She believes that the Messiah is coming. So at first, she has questioned whether Jesus is better than Jacob, to which he says, yes, I am. But now she's saying, I think maybe you might be a prophet. Well, now she's starting to get closer to who he actually is. Because for a Samaritan to identify someone as a prophet meant that she was equating him with Moses. Because she didn't believe there's been a prophet since Moses. So she's equating him with Moses, and it leaves open the possibility that he might be the Messiah, which is why she jumps immediately to, might he be the Messiah? So she tries to get Jesus to weigh in on a theological debate. She's testing his mettle. Well, if you are really a prophet, then maybe you can settle a debate we've been having in this land for some time now. So she asks him to weigh in on this debate that the Jews and the Samaritans have. Jews obviously say that the location where you're supposed to worship is on Mount Moriah. 
That's where the temple was built. The temple of Solomon was built on Mount Moriah. That's where the temple mount still stands to this day. That's where in Jesus' day, Herod's temple, the second temple, was currently standing as he's having that conversation with her. But Samaritans say that the place to worship is actually on Mount Gerizim, which is in the land of Shechem. They can actually see Mount Gerizim from where they're at at the well. So it's, it's right there. The mount literally overlooks Shechem. Why? Because that's the first place that Abraham had a sacrifice to the Lord back in Genesis. And so they say that's the holy place. So Mount Gerizim overlooks the land of Shechem. But you notice in verse 21 that Jesus rejects her premise altogether. He says, well, pretty soon, both of you are going to be wrong. Which is a very Jesus answer to the problem. Pretty soon, both of you are going to be wrong. In other words, after Jesus' death and resurrection, all the external considerations of worship are not going to be a pivotal factor any longer. That's not going to be the determining factor. He tells her in verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. In other words, there are two factors that take precedence in new covenant worship. The first is that the worshiper has to value Christ above everything in their own life. Has to value Christ above everything in their own life. How do we know this? Because this is the way Jesus presents to you salvation in Matthew 13, 44. He shows a man digging in a field, and the man strikes gold in the field. And he says, this is salvation. The man has found the kingdom of heaven buried in the ground. And what does he do? In his joy goes and sells all he owns so that he can buy the field. This is the way Jesus presents salvation to us. That's what it means to be saved. It's people whose hearts are set ablaze by salvation in Christ. It's those who love not their own lives, even unto death, as the Scriptures tell us. But the other factor... That, Christ is, that, that is Christ-centered worship in new covenant worship is that it's doctrinally true. The worship is doctrinally true. Now Christ-centering, God-honoring worship cannot be done where the truths of Scripture are not expounded or where songs that are sung are not doctrinally faithful or where prayers are not directed to God the Father, through God the Son, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Where that's not done, that is not Christ-centered, God-honoring worship. So that means that it's possible, then, for you to come to a worship service where people around you that are gathered are worshiping God. It's possible for you to come to the service and even participate in all of the things that we do. The singing, the praying, the listening, and not actually have worshipped God. Especially if you're not truly converted. And by that, I mean that your joy, you're ready to sell everything that you own. 
that in your joy, you're ready to sell everything that you own, even if it means your own life, for the treasure you found in Christ. But neither can you have a heart that is engaged in worship, but the prayers are directed to a false Christ. The preaching is of a false Christ, like you would found, find in a Mormon church. Or you might find in some Christian churches. Or perhaps Mary or one of the saints are the objects of your prayers, like you would find in a Roman Catholic church. Or where the scriptures that are taught are taught falsely, like in a prosperity gospel church. It may be true that there may be some Christians in those places, but they're not worshiping God. You'll notice in our worship service, we begin, as I said last week, with a focus on adoration. The prayer is about how great God is and why we are here to worship. The songs that follow that, as listed in your bulletin, are songs of adoration designed to reflect our attention on our, God's worthiness of being worshipped. But then the third song enters into a time of confession where we begin to consider who we are in light of those things. The lyrics of the song typically reflect who we are in light of who God is. That He is holy, but we are sinners. We start to think about the sins that so easily entangle us. And then usually Jeremy comes up here and he leads the scriptural call to confession where we see in Scripture particular sins that are outlined for us there in the Scriptures. And we take a different one every week. We try to hit them all, basically. And sometimes we try to find things that are a little bit off the beaten path. Things that you might not consider sin. They might cause you to reflect on some of the things in your own life. But then after he prays, where he models a prayer of confession for us, he turns it over to you. This is your time as a church to just sit here in silence. Sometimes the silence feels like it's forever. And sometimes it feels like it's not enough. But it's a time for you to think about your own sins. Not necessarily the one he brought up, but your own sins. It's a time for you to think about all the ways in which you might have possibly been carrying sin into this place and to know God does not want you to carry those sins. He wants you to confess them. Because the marker of a Christian is one that has godly grief over sin and then turns to the Lord in confession and repentance. But we don't want to leave it there. So he reads a scripture on the back end that reminds us of who we are in Christ. That if you are in Christ, you are redeemed. You are forgiven. Because we want to be reminded that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Amen. Now, this is encouraging true worshipers to consider just for a moment the sins that we're attempting to bring into the worship of God. But this is also why I take very seriously the preached word and why my goal week in and week out 
is to ensure that what I'm saying about the Scriptures are true. It's why I I go to great lengths to make sure that the songs that we're singing, more than that they're upbeat or slow, that they're doctrinally faithful, that they're directed toward God when they should be, and reflective of us when they should be, instead of just singing about me like so many of our modern praise songs do. But all that's for naught if our hearts are not lit on fire by the salvation that we have in Christ. All of it's worthless. Doesn't even matter. No amount of doctrinal faithfulness amounts to a hill of beans if you don't come ready and prepared to worship. None of it's going to matter. If in your classes beforehand there's gossip and slander, maybe some of it masquerading as prayer requests, If that's what's happening, then what good is our worship that we're bringing in here? If you're seeking sexual fulfillment from a computer screen at night, and your intention is to go back to it today, then your worship is non-existent regardless of how many doctrinally faithful songs that we sing. You must find Christ more satisfying than all of those things. Christ-centered worship happens when true believers desire to grow in the knowledge of God. That's why I challenged us last week to come with our hearts ready to worship. So I sent out an email this week of what passage that we're going to be in so you could read it ahead of time so you could think about ways in which this applies to your own life. That's why we are in here and we fight the sleepies because he goes on for a long time. Songs are slow today. They're not fast and upbeat why we correct our minds when they're tempted to wander focus on the task at hand so we might add to our definition of what worship is it'll appear on the screen behind me so you don't have to worry about missing it worship is the expression of the worth of god based on a proper understanding of who he is and celebrating with hearts and minds the salvation he provides through christ alone And celebrating with hearts and minds the salvation that He provides through Christ alone. Third observation that I want us to make. You can leave that definition up on the screen because I know some people are going to write it down. Christ-centered worshipers proclaim the gospel. I think you can remember that one. Christ-centered worshipers proclaim the gospel. So here's the irony of the story that we see here with the woman at the well. The woman who now is, I'm pretty sure, believes that Jesus may in fact be the Messiah, or at least she is seriously considering it, and she's obviously thrilled about that possibility, and how do we know? Well, because she immediately packs up and she goes, or she doesn't actually pack up, she leaves everything she's got there at the well, and she goes to to see her friends there in verse 29. And she says, we... Uh, uh, sorry, yeah, in verse 29. Come, come see, can this be the Christ? In fact, based on the woman's testimony, all the townspeople come and check it out. They hang around with Jesus for a couple of days, and then they confirm it in verse 42. We have heard for ourselves, this is indeed the Savior of the world. The Samaritan village, it seems, including the woman at the well, 
all become genuine worshipers of Jesus. They become ultimately satisfied that He is the Savior of the world. But the disciples? Well, maybe not so much. See, they've been following Jesus around for some time. And look at the response there in verse 27 that they have to Him talking to a woman at the, woman at the well. It says they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? Notice, John is sure to tell you that they don't ask him a question. The disciples didn't go up to him and ask him, why were you talking with her? They didn't do that, but they wanted to. It was cooking around in our noodles, John says, though we didn't dare ask him about it. It says they marveled at it. It could mean also they wondered about it. That's kind of what that, that means. But they thought it was strange. Think about this. The disciples that had been following Jesus and seeing his miracles thought it was strange that the Savior of the world was talking to this lady who is a Samaritan and needs salvation. They thought that was strange. For the disciples up to this point, the fact that Jesus is the Messiah it hasn't really hit home just yet, but it will. Remember in Acts 4.20, where Peter tells them, we cannot keep silent about what we have seen and heard. See, they eventually get it. Eventually the disciples get to the point where all true worship of Christ ultimately leads to evangelism. It has to. True worship of Christ has to lead to evangelism. Should make us ask the question, can we really claim that our worship is Christ-centered? Can we really claim that we're treasuring Christ above all else, that He's the most important thing to us? He's more important than anything else in our life. Can we really say that we're ultimately satisfied in Christ. If our hearts aren't bubbling with an excitement to tell someone else the good news of Jesus, that doesn't make sense. That can't work like that. See, if the living waters of Christ are not welling up, think of Jacob's well, if the living waters of Christ aren't welling up for others to drink from, what are we doing here? Those aren't welling up waters. Those aren't flowing waters. Nobody else can drink from them. What good are they? Jesus tells his disciples in verse 35, the fields are white for harvest. Brothers and sisters, I want you to think about something. This very day, there are people who are interested in worshiping Jesus. There are people who are interested in worshiping Jesus. So interested, in fact, that they got up this morning. They got all the kids ready. Mothers, can I get an amen? Fathers too, okay. They got all the kids ready. They put them in the van. 
they got to church, they tried to, on time. They walked into probably a place that they're not completely comfortable with, and they sat in a pew, and they songs were put on a screen maybe, or sung from a hymnal, and they sang those songs, even though they weren't totally sure what they meant. And they're sitting there in the pews or in the chairs right now, and they're probably right now listening to a pastor. Right now. They're listening, and they don't totally understand what he's saying. But they, what they weren't completely aware of is that like the woman at the well, they're sitting under a false gospel. Like the Samaritans, they're sitting under a false gospel. Perhaps it's the prosperity gospel. They're sitting maybe under a pastor that's telling them that in order to be saved, you have to speak in tongues. Perhaps they're sitting under a pastor that tells them, God's totally cool with whatever you want to do. However you want to live your life, that's perfectly fine. God's perfectly okay with it. Don't worry about it. He just wants you to come here and enjoy Him. They desperately need you to tell them that what you're hearing every Sunday is not true. That I love you too much to not tell you that I have serious concerns about what you're hearing on a Sunday morning. That I want you to sit down with me. I want you to read the Bible. I want you to listen to some of these sermons that, that are preached at your church and just let's look and see if they actually line up with what Scripture is telling us is true. See, tell me if that doesn't contradict with what you're being taught is said in the Scriptures. See, our fields are white with harvest. We just have to know where to look. Our liturgy demonstrates what's most important to us. It does in every church. Liturgy will always determine what is most important to us. And my prayer is that what our liturgy says is that worshiping the majestic and sovereign God of the universe who has saved His people from their sins is, what's, is what put forward in our liturgy. That that's what's most important to us. That knowing that is most important to us. We can provide, though, all the liturgy we want. But if our hearts and minds are engaged in worship of God the Father through Jesus Christ, His Son then it is utterly meaningless. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, lift up our church and the hearts that are gathered here, my own included. Father, with the power of your Spirit, push in close to us. Draw us in close to you. that we may know with all certainty the God that we're coming here to worship. That it may be for our joy, regardless of what we're going through on in, on our, in our lives, that when we come here and gather together, 
we may celebrate knowing that if we have nothing else but we have Christ, then we have everything. Father, we know that that's a message that will translate to other cultures where prosperity is not an option. Set our hearts on fire with a deep desire to know more who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.